morning. We are small but mighty. I love hearing the praise of the saints this morning. Um, if you would, turn in your, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to spend some time together on our third and final uh, sermon in our mini-series within a series. Um, so we've been tackling Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 the last two weeks. Uh, and today will be the final message in that small series. Um, so if you would, when you found Ephesians 5, stand with me. Uh, if you're able to, we'll read uh, the scriptures together and we'll stand in honor of the one who gave us this word. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 reads, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together on this Lord's Day in worship of you. Thank you for the encouragement of, of hearing the saints sing praises to you, um, and, and the amazing encouragement is uh, to me uh, to worship with them. And we just thank you for the opportunity to gather and study of your word, uh, to, to look at your attributes in Sunday school, and now to, to see how we as husbands can, can live uh, in a God-honoring way. I do pray, Father, that you will remove any instruction or any uh, restrictions or hindrances from me, uh, that you would instruct my mouth by your spirit, and that your word would uh, fall in the hearts of everyone here, and that your spirit would prepare their hearts for the word, and that it would impact us to your glory. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. So if you recall, a couple weeks ago, we took the first portion of this passage, because this passage, if you guys remember, I described it as kind of a Venn diagram. So um, it's got three different topics uh, inter intertwined, um, really laced throughout the, the, the 11 verses. Um, and those have some overlap, but it's pretty much three distinct topics, which is wives' submission, Christ and the church, and husbands. And so this last week, we're going to talk about husbands. And similarly to whenever I, I address the first few verses of this passage uh, in wives submitting to their husbands, I first addressed multiple things um, at the, the very beginning, at the outset, that our culture has inundated the church with, have, have pushed on ladies, have brought up about submission, have brought up um, a lot of it stemming from feminism, and a lot of issues in the household caused from uh, misinformation about submission. So I want to address similarly today husbands with some things that we need to get out in the open first 
some things that are, are incorrect ideas of headship and leading the home and, and how the husband should act towards his wife because there's a lot of things that our culture and especially in the church um, has, has caused ditches to be on both sides of the road. Uh, and there's a lot of things. So there's two words, men, um, I want you to think of. Keep in your mind, dominate and abdicate. Those are two ditches that are the most common for husbands today, to dominate or to abdicate. And so men have a tendency to, uh, culturally especially, um, abdicate. And what abdicate means is to shun the responsibility, to set it aside, to give it to someone else, to not do the job that husbands are called to do. And so men are, 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 are seeing a higher rise in abdication. You see it in our culture. Uh, how many TV shows do you see that portrays the dad as dumb, doesn't know what he's talking about, doesn't know what he's doing, the mom has to take charge and do all the things. And so it's, it's ingrained in our culture that men, again, a rise in feminism is, is largely to blame for this, but that men are not able and capable to do the role that God has called them to do. And so men, we tend to abdicate. We just set it aside and go, well, I guess I'm not going to do a very good job, so I'm just not going to do it at all. And so we set aside our responsibility. So that's one ditch. So think of this like a road. The other ditch, or the pendulum swinging too far the other way, is, believe it or not, seen more often, it's in both, but more often in the church than it is in the culture. And that is domination. Domination. And that is swinging the pendulum too far the other direction. And that is taking Scripture completely out of context to justify demeaning your spouse, to justify um, not lovingly leading, to justify almost a dictatorship, if you will, um, to justify um, controlling things that are, are, are absolutely not within the purview of what Ephesians is talking about. In fact, this text is often ripped screaming and kicking out of context of, of Christ leading the church and used to, to just frankly beat women upside the head in the church. Um, there's a lot of experience that I have in my own life of being raised in certain denominations that do that. My wife can, can testify that. I'm sure there's others in here that have seen that other ditch um, really lived in by churches. So I want you to think about those two things, men. Those are the two things that we are going to avoid. We're going to look at how Christ loved the church and how to stay on the road and what that means um, for us an example, as an example of husbands loving and leading their wives. But please keep the two words dominate and abdicate in your minds as things to avoid because it's very easy to fall into either one of those sides of the road. Another thing that I want to clarify is what we're going to talk about today, husbands, is not about waiting till your wife submits. There's some that say, well, I'll lead and I can do the things that God called me to do in this passage and I can love as Christ loved the church. As soon as she submits, I'll do that. Because if you look at the text, it says wives submit and that's what Paul talks about first. Well, I challenge that very heavily because first of all, Paul spends over double the amount of words speaking to husbands than he does the wives. And in true Greek fashion, the most important part of the, the speech is often what is included with the highest word count. That's just, that's just how they articulated themselves. Not to mention, in nowhere in Scripture, nowhere at all, does it say, husbands, love your wives when she acts right. It's not what it says. 
just as it doesn't say wives submit to your husbands when he acts right. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And so one of the things I want you to set aside is the fact that your obedience to Christ and how you lead your family is dependent on how they act because it's not. And let me tell you, God's love for you is not dependent on how you act either. Keep that in mind. Headship is truly about authority. Being a husband is about the sanctification of not only the husband, but also the power of God in us through the indwelling spirit to then help sanctify our family and to lead them in the way of of truth. So this message is a very application-heavy message. I just want to prepare you for that because we're going to take principles that we learned last week. We're going to take the principles of, of sermon number two. And so wives, I want you to think back. Two weeks ago, we talked about wives submitting, and I said, look forward to the coming message because we're going to talk about Christ. So wives, you're basically looking forward to message two as the pinnacle, Christ as the pinnacle. Husbands, we're looking back to what we learned last week as the pinnacle. So, so think of Christ as the absolute uh, focus of this text, and then we take our direction from that. Um, I'm going to read a small quote here because I think it sets us up today for what we're going to learn, men. Husbands cannot understand their daily responsibilities in a marriage without understanding that their primary purpose as heads of household is to help all persons in the home fully apprehend the Lord's grace in their lives. He goes on to say, Biblical headship is simply the exercise of a God-given authority whereby a man does all that is within his power to see that love, justice, and mercy rule in his home, even when fostering such qualities requires his own personal sacrifice. So men, today we have a tall order. This this sermon, full transparency, has wrecked me this week. Okay? This is not Pastor Josh preaching from a a point of having arrived. This is not an idea of me saying, I practice this perfectly. By God's grace, I'm certainly better than I have been, but I'm not there yet. So men, let's learn together, as this has challenged me, because our calling is high. Our responsibility is weighty. So let's help each other to live as godly men in our homes. So number one, number one, we're going to be in verses 25 through 27 for a few moments. Number one, if you have the sermon notes, is love her as Christ loves. Love her as Christ loves. So we begin in 25. It reads, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So I want us to understand, first of all, men, that husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church means that everything that Paul is about to tell us, everything that we discussed last week, you're going to hear a lot of similarities. Remember last week when I said, pay attention, guys? We're going to see a lot of similarities to how Christ loved the church that we are going to practically apply today. And that is heavy, heavy material to think about. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then Paul goes into a description of how Christ loved the church and what he did for her. So he begins first with a loving sacrifice. You guys recall from last week, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I want to start by saying that nowhere in the Bible 
Nowhere in the Bible is love described as taking advantage of others for personal gain. Nowhere in the Bible is that described as love. And yet in our marriages, husbands, do we not sometimes, not all the time, but more often than not in some cases maybe, especially when we were younger, do we not sometimes put our own needs above our wives? That's not the definition of love, is it? We, are, we, are, we sometimes take advantage of the fact that our wife does certain things or, or acts certain ways so that we can then get personal gain out of the relationship. The primary thing that we have to understand is that love is a sacrifice. The definition of love, God is love. The definition of love is action. Christ showed his love for us by what he did for us. So therefore, men, we show our love for our wives by the sacrifice that we make. Now, there's a lot of men that read verse 25 and they say, oh, yes, I will absolutely give my life up for my wife. I will 100% give my wife my life up for my wife. The second someone breaks in, I'm jumping in front of that bullet. You don't have to worry about that. If there was a house fire, I'd run back in to get her. You don't have to worry about that. I will give my life for my wife. Great. I applaud that. We should be willing to sacrifice ourselves in that manner. But do you open the car door for your wife? Do you help her with her responsibilities with the children? And I'm, I'm just using examples. I'm not saying that's how your household has to function. Please understand. What I am trying to say, though, is to, to pinpoint the example that we as men sometimes fall into the ditch, another ditch that would, would say, you're just called to sacrifice your life when that has to happen. Well, let's, let's think about the reality of that. The chances of us having to fend off a robber in our home in Marshfield, Missouri, are probably pretty small. I'm not saying it can't happen, but the chances are relatively low. This is not about protecting her from a break-in, although we should be doing that. This is about sacrificing all of yourself for your wife. We as husbands have to understand that it is not about us. The example of Christ is putting the needs of the church before his own position and comforts. He laid aside his seat of glory at the Father's right hand for the church. He had no home on this earth. Foxes, and, 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 uh, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He sacrificed his own comforts, even as putting on flesh he didn't have comforts on this earth. He laid aside what he had for the church, sacrificing not only his life, but how he lived as well. So think about that, men. Loving your wife is about action. Another thing that Christ did for the church, if you recall from last week, is loving sanctification. He lovingly sanctified the church. Now, I want you guys to pause for a second. Don't get too excited or too nervous. We can't physically sanctify our wives. That's Christ's work. Okay? But what we can do is live in such a way that our wives are being sanctified by our leadership. That God uses us in a way that our wives are being led to him over and over, day in and day out. Prioritizing the word in our homes and our relationship with one another. We must be men that lead our family in worship. Yes, it's vitally important to lead our kids in family worship, but men, we are to lead our wives and how to study the word. We are to be examples to our wives in living out God's calling. 
We are to be men of the word that we will keep our wives focused on Christ and so that they, we can ensure that they are, are through every way possible that we can manage within our own power, growing in the relationship with Christ. Our wives should prioritize Christ over us by our very leadership. Think about that for a minute. The text says wives submit to your husbands, right? But it says wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So we should so prioritize Christ in our lives and in our leadership that, they, that she follows her more than she follows us. Do you follow? That should be where, where the natural outcome falls. The next thing that Christ does for the church is he presents her a loving presentation. Verse 27 says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. When was the last time, this, this challenged me, when was the last time that you focused on your wife's glory? Focus on your wife's glory. No, I don't mean glory in the, in the way that we would glorify God. But do we focus, men, husbands, on our wives being lifted up and glorified above ourselves? Because that kind of brings a whole other level. Yes, we know we're to provide. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. We're, we're, we're to, to make sure there's a roof over the head and, and cars and food. But when was the last time we focused on our wife's glory, presenting her to others and to Christ as glorified, as the gift that she is to us? Are the decisions that we make, the way we communicate and how we lead for her, is it, is it for her, for her glory, is it for ourselves? Where's the priority at? Do we make decisions based on what is best for her or what is best for ourselves? Do we have to diminish our wives so that we can feel better about who we are? Are we looking for our, our identity in Christ instead of who our wife thinks we are? Those are some challenging questions that I had to wrestle with this week, and I would encourage you men to think about those. How do we handle our wife's glory? Is she protected from spot or blemish? Do we lead with integrity? That's what the text says, is that Christ presents the church as holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle. And there's some that would say, there's, there's some progressive Christians that would say that this is talking about pushing back against the cultural norms of wives having to, to do the laundry, a spot or wrinkle, and then iron the clothes. That is not what this is about. This is a metaphor for the purity of the church. We talked about that last week, didn't we? About how Christ purifies his church. This is about the spot or blemish. The, this is about the, the sanctification of your wife. This is about her holy living. This is about your leadership calling into question whether or not she's living a holy life. Does your leadership encourage your, her walk with Christ or does it discourage her walk with Christ? Do we lead with integrity? 
Do we set the example of righteous and holy living when no one outside the marriage is looking? And how we chose to sell the car? And how we choose to do our taxes? And how we, we speak about other people with our wife? I want to give you a scriptural example. You can write this down. You don't have to turn there. Acts 5, 1 and 2. Acts 5. Does the name Ananias and Sapphira ring a bell with anyone? Who was responsible in that situation? Let's read it. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't Sapphira. In Acts 5, 1 and 2, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, his leadership, his plan, with his wife's full knowledge. Now, she knew about it. She's responsible for knowing about it and not doing the right thing. I'm not taking away the responsibility uh, that she had before God. But his leadership, it was his idea. He chose to act in an immoral and unethical fashion, and it cost his wife his life or her life by his leadership. Now, again, I am not in any way advocating that every sin that a wife commits is the husband's responsibility. But I think husbands share in the sin of their wives more often as the leader than maybe we would like to admit. It does happen. We have to accept responsibility for that because we are the leaders of the home. Because we are, as husbands, to do everything within our power to ensure she is holy and blameless. Now, I'm not talking about, again, the, the, the kind of holy and blameless that Christ did for the church because we are physically not able to redeem our wives in, a, in, a, in their standing before God. But what we can do, as I mentioned earlier, is to ensure by every possible means, by every decision we make, that our household is living according to the word of God. That we are leading our wives in scripture, that we are pointing them to Christ. When decisions have to be made, where do you point your decision making? Do you decide because Jordan Peterson said it? Or do you decide because the scriptures say it? It's that, that small of an example can set the precedent for how our homes are lived out daily. Where do we as men point our wives and how are we leading them? So I want to give a few practical examples from Christ and how he was on this earth. Um, there was too many examples to give the scriptures for us to write them down and read some different parables and some different stories of the Gospels. But Christ, when we think through the found, of what he did here in Ephesians, we think through Ephesians 5 and the references to the church. Last week we established that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles, right? Remember in John 17, he specifically says not only for the disciples, but those who would come after them. So the, the disciples is the foundation of the church. We've talked about it a couple different times in Ephesians. So how did Christ treat the apostles while he was on this earth? Because we can see a primary foundational example of how men are to treat their wives by how Christ taught the church, or treated the church when he was on this earth. Therefore, the apostles. So there's three things that he did. He led, he taught, and he sacrificed. He led, he taught, and he sacrificed for the apostles. He led the disciples. There's examples throughout the Gospels of him leading them to what was best for them. He led them through a field of corn when they were hungry. He told them to go fish for the tax money. He led them to different cities. 
He sent them out with the exact provisions that they needed to go out into the world over and over. You see him leading in a way that is best for the disciples. Whether they felt it was the time or not is a different story. He led for what was best for the disciples. He taught his disciples. Over and over and over, you see him taking parables, breaking them down, and explaining to his disciples they were in the know whenever he was teaching in ways to keep people from knowing. Those who have ears, let them hear. You guys remember those words? He taught them parables, Old Testament references. He used scripture to teach them about himself. And then he sacrificed for his disciples. And I don't mean just on the cross. And yes, he, he absolutely sacrificed his life on the cross. But he sacrificed his life daily. Think about the disciples and how he washed their feet. Probably one of the most sacrificial moments between Christ and his followers. He sacrificed for them. And so I want us to think about the different applications that we have from these different aspects of point one. Because, again, this, this sermon today is going to be focused on applying what the example that we saw from last week's sermon to the life of us as husbands. A biblical love is self-sacrificial. That's the main thing I want you to take away from point one. Biblical love is self-sacrificial. It is not prioritizing me, it's prioritizing others. True biblical leadership is putting the needs of the one you are leading above your own needs so that the decisions that you make, which those following you are to submit to, and they are, but those decisions that you make are trusted because they know that you have their best in mind, not your own best in mind. I'm going to say that again. True biblical leadership is putting the needs of the one you are leading above your own needs so that the decisions that you make, which those following you are to submit to, are trusted because they know that you have their best in mind, not your own best in mind. That's a wild difference and what the world would say leadership is, isn't it? It's a wild difference. And I would liken this to trusting the sovereignty of God. We are to trust the sovereignty of God because, number one, he's sovereign, but number two, we know by his example in Scripture and his revelation to us that he is doing what's best for us. Even when it's hard to see, even when it hurts, even when Abraham had to take Isaac to the mountain, in the end, Abraham was closer to God. Job lost everything he owned. In the end, Job knew God better, which was ultimately better for him. That's the definition of true biblical leadership. Point number two, if you have your notes, point number two, love her as you love yourself. So now Paul's going to use a different analogy. So he's talked about as Christ loved the church, and he's still going to interweave that in here, but now he's using a, a different metaphor in verses 28 and 29. It says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So remember, when we think about love, 
that it is self-sacrificial. Now he says, the love that you are to have is, uh, for your wives is as, is as though she were your own body. Your own body. Without a mental illness, like we, we see in Scripture of someone being demon-possessed and, and cutting themselves, without a mental illness or something outside of, of the normal, man does not hurt himself. Self-preservation in man has been blamed for vast majority of large accomplishments in the human race, right? Let's think about it. Self-preservation is, is a pilot, is a directive, is a ship towards invention. Like, how many times have you seen that? Men preserve their own lives. And so husbands... Do we live in such a way that we are not hurting our own bodies? Because that is what our wives are. In our tones, in our interactions. In fact, in verse 28, or verse 29, excuse me, it says, for no one ever hated his own flesh. I want to, to address that word hate here. Because in our culture, hate means a complete and utter disgust or repulsion. Don't want to have anything to do with it. But in this context, the hate here is about alienating. It's not about a complete and utter hatred and disgust as we would think, but it's about alienating or being hostile toward. Men, we can so easily fall into a rut in living life and trying to do all the things, all the things that we have to do. And I'm not saying that we don't have a lot on our plates, but that is no excuse to alienate our spouses. Lack of communication, lack of honesty, lack of transparency, just putting our head down and doing it is one of the most common ways that I think husbands fall into the trap of this kind of hating. And it happens, doesn't it? We have a lot on our shoulders. I'm not saying we don't. God has given us the greater responsibility. I'm not denying that. But in no way, shape, or form is that an excuse for what I see happening in churches in my experience throughout my life. We have a functional alienation of our wives, and that is not how we are to live. Because we are not to hate or alienate our own bodies. We are not to hurt our own bodies. In fact, he starts with the negative, as he often does, no one ever hated his own flesh, but then he says at the end of verse 29, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. We are to nourish our wives. We must care for our wives in providing for them physically. I want to think about the physical side first with the word nourish. Are we taking care of our, our wives? Are we providing for them? Not in, not in leftover energies, but as if they were our own bodies? Do we prioritize her needs above our own? Do we treat her better than ourselves? We are to be the second thought, the last one in that line, the guy in the back seat. I don't mean from a leadership perspective, so please don't hear me saying driving-wise. Driving life, I mean. But put yourself on the back burner. That's ultimately what I'm trying to say. Put yourself on the back burner. 
Is she provided for? Does she have the things that she needs? Are you leading well from a physical standpoint? You have to ask yourselves those questions. Where's the budget at? Can we provide things that we, that we need to provide? We've asked our wives to, to fulfill their role in submitting to us, but are, are they submitting to wise financial decisions? Are they submitting to wise decisions when we purchase something for the family? For managing debt? Are we providing for our wives, men? Secondly, we are to cherish her. To cherish her. There's several definitions of cherish, and they all overlap, I think. Protect and care for lovingly. To hold dear. To keep in one's mind. Men, our job is not only to provide for our wives physically. You can be knocking it out of the park providing for your wife. Good management, good debt, making sure that there's, there's no um, unwise decisions. You're leading your home to the glory of God physically. But your wife needs as much care emotionally for who she is as a person as she does for physical provision. And that is not our strong suit, men, is it? Let's be honest. That's where, we, that's where we tend to abdicate first. Remember our words that we're supposed to avoid earlier? That's where we tend to abdicate, abdicate first because we don't relate like that. Do we? Not as well as we should. That's a struggle for me, I know for sure. Now, I'm not saying this, and I want to make sure I'm not implying that wives are lesser or intrinsically less value. They're just different. That's how God designed them. Okay? This is not an intrinsic value that is lower than us that we have to come along and bring them up to our level. That's not what I'm advocating for because that leads to domination. Remember the other ditch? When we start considering our wives lesser and that we have to fix them, quote-unquote, that's repulsive. But we must care for our wives in providing for them emotionally. Many husbands are so insecure for a variety of reasons that we end up robbing our wives of their worth. We have to be careful, men. And you have to do it in such a way that your wives understand it to be you cherishing them. If your wife doesn't like flowers, buying her flowers and going, this is what the culture says works, that doesn't communicate that you cherish her, does it? Get to know your wife. What does she see as you cherishing her? What communicates love? There is such a thing as love languages. What does your wife see as communicating love? Find out and pursue it. The date of marriage does not stop the pursuit in a relationship. It starts it. Dating is simply, are you compatible enough to follow the word of God, ultimately. That's what it is. Is this person a believer, attracted to? This is this marriage material. The day you get married is the start of your pursuit. There are statistics that show that the vast majority of, of marriages end in the first seven years. The first seven years is the hardest. And I can, I can vouch for that. My wife is shaking her head in agreement. 
It takes seven years. So if you think about that statistic playing out, that means it takes seven years to learn your spouse. Seven years. Pursue your spouse. Find out what she likes. Find out what speaks to her. Find out if you're communicating in a way that she reads as love and that she knows that you cherish her. Be open and honest with her. Speak with her about the things that are on your mind. Seek her opinion about your leadership. There's a novel idea. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, not, not, I, I say that to, to, to the, the tongue-in-cheek comment that I made was because there's so many in the church today that go, I'm the man, I'll make the decisions in this house, and they pop their suspenders and off they go to write and do. And, and No, seek the emotional and, 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 and uh, logical involvement of your wife. Do you know that wives, because they are emotional creatures, tend to be able to sense things differently than we can? Be uncomfortable about things in a situation and go, I don't think that's a good idea. Trust your wives. That is a way of cherishing her. If you trust her opinion, you are on her mind, that helps you be a better unit. Because we're going to look at our next point, that we are no longer supposed to be separate entities, individuals. We are one flesh. This is not a rogue game that we're pulling our wives, wives along on. We are united as one flesh. R.C. Sproul says this about this particular text. One of the most wonderful parts of the marriage ceremony is the vow that we take to cherish one another. To cherish one another means to hold one another in the highest esteem and to place an infinite value on one another. This is the attitude that is to permeate the home, not a power struggle or a seesaw battle for more authority than the other one. Rather, the man is to love his wife as he loves his own flesh. A man takes care of his own flesh. He feeds himself, eats, drinks, nourishes his body, and protects it. He has a strong instinct of self-preservation. He is to love his wife even more than he loves himself. Think about the nourish and cherish idea, men. Because this goes right in line. Our application here goes right in line with what we talked about in point one. We are to present her as glorious, provided for, led, sought after, of value, so that she sees her worth in Christ and that we are leading her towards Christ, that her value comes from Christ. Do you see how that goes hand in hand? She doesn't receive value because we give it to her. She receives value because she is a follower of Christ. And we lead her as such. It is a weighty task. It is weighty and it is one that is not to be taken lightly. We must raise her above ourselves. Number three. Number three, love her as though you're one. Love her as though you are one. Verses 31 through 33 of chapter 5. It reads, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, 
Each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So we're coming to the close of the thought process here. Paul's going to summarize, and we'll get to that, that final verse in the summary here in just a moment. But before we do, I want us men to understand, and wives as well, that this has been established from the dawn of creation. Paul here quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. This is how he designed it at the beginning. This is how he designed it to be for all of eternity. And he did this in such a way that we would have a glimpse into how Christ loves his church. Praise God for him being all-knowing. He gave us something that we could physically and tangibly wrap our minds around to understand Christ's love for the church that was going to come some 2,000 years after that. 4,000 years after that, excuse me. A long time. And so this example that we have set down from creation means it is not to be questioned. It is not to be toyed with. It is not to be changed or altered. We don't take it and have two men and two women, multiple men and one woman, vice versa, a man who thinks he's a woman, anything else. It is one man one woman from the foundation of creation, and everything outside of that is sin. Everything. This is established, and we are not to question it. And this marriage is two being one. That's why Paul quotes it. The two shall become one flesh. But first, I want to make a comment before I go too far into that. Men... Your wife is your priority, not your mother. I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm just saying, I've seen it happen, okay? Not your father, not your brother. I'm not saying to abandon them. You are to respect them because Christ says, the scriptures talk about respecting your, your, your father and mother, okay? But the priority is your wife. That is your priority. You are to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife to becoming one flesh. Paul is trying to make sure that he gets across in this entire text from front to back that the husband has to recognize that the wife is an integral part of who he is. God created woman as the helpmate to complete him. It is not good for him to be alone. Paul is trying to make us stubborn, individualistic, lone, rogue, lone wolf men who think we can conquer the world by ourselves understand that God created our wives to complete who we are and that we do not function, we are not fully who we are designed to be without wives. The wife that God gives us, excuse me. I'm not saying you have to go get married. There's a section of scripture about that. But please understand, if God has, has chosen you to get married, your wife is there to complete who you are. It takes the two to become one flesh. That's what it says. The two become one. And this is an example of the covenant that Christ made with his church. It is the two becoming one in covenant. Not only physically and intimately in the marriage bed, 
but the two becoming one functionally, no longer being seen as individuals, but one body. Yes, there's an aspect of individual relationship with Christ, and I know I've mentioned that several times. But functionally, we are no longer two individual people. We are one to the glory of God. And so we have to make sure and, and, and prioritize that message because that is how God designed it from the very beginning of time. And he goes on to say, Paul says, it's a mystery. This mystery is great in verse 32. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This idea of mystery that Paul writes, I know sometimes we in our culture think of mystery as we're going to go to a restaurant and they're going to turn the lights out and someone's going to act dead and we have to figure out the, the mystery, right? This, this, this solvable thing that we have to figure out. The mystery that Paul is using here, the, the, word of, the idea of mystery here, is something that has been brought to light. Something that was hidden before, but we now know. Not something that we go try to find out, that it's still hidden, but it's a mystery. It was something we didn't know that now we know. And Paul has explained that this relationship between man and wife, that we can physically, tangibly see, we, we see the vow, we see the covenant, we come before God, we are united as one, is the same covenant relationship that Christ has with his church. The only difference is, is that Christ maintains his covenant that he made with the church, the covenant of grace. Single-handedly maintains that. But if we don't understand that we are now no longer two individuals, but one, we will undoubtedly slip into one of the two ditches. What were they? Pop quiz. Abdicate and dominate. Don't fall into the ditches, guys. We are to absolutely understand the intimate connection, the completion of who we are as individuals happens in marriage. Men, we need our wives. Not in a tongue-in-cheek matter like, well, I couldn't survive without her because she cooks everything. That's not what I'm talking about. Although I can't cook, so that is, there's some truth to that. But this is the idea that our wives complete who we are. I'm beating a dead horse with this because I want us to understand we cannot lead as heads of household, as husbands are designed to do, if we don't understand that they are part of us, not with us. There is a difference between being part of something and with something, isn't there? There's a big difference there. They are not with us. We are not dragging them along on our journey, on our life. It is our combined union of us, her and us, her, her and the husband, husband and wife. The last thing that we see here is the summary of Paul's point that he's trying to make. Nevertheless, in verse 33, nevertheless, despite the mystery, Paul is saying, despite the mystery, all that being said, each individual, so this is talking about each individual husband, among you also is to love your own wife as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is to be viewed in such a way that the love from the husband and respect from the wife are what supports and drives the marriage so that it reflects how Christ loves the church and the church responds to Christ. Men, we are to love our wives as ourselves, as Christ loves the church as himself. Wives, you are to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, so that we are the example in the world today of Christ and his church.
We are functionally in the world as an example. Hear that, married, married couples. We are functionally an example in the world today of Christ and his church. That is a heavy responsibility for Christian husbands and wives. Because marriage as an institution has been ransacked, destroyed, vandalized, and all but torn apart. And we have lost our ability as a church to substantially say, no, look at us. This is how a marriage is supposed to work. Because guess what? The divorce rate's the same. The divorce rate in the church is the same. The, the website that is used for infidelity had a poll on it. I can't remember the exact numbers, but the, the, the numbers of those claiming to be evangelical Christians on that website were equal to those who didn't using the website to... The church can no longer in our culture continue to, be, to, to, to treat marriage the way that we have. We have to look at it from a scriptural perspective. We have to. So the husband and wife are one. The, the, the application overall from this third point, we are one body in covenant together to worship and glorify Christ. We are united together for that very purpose. So as I mentioned, this was going to be a heavy application message. I know sometimes that can be weighty and it can feel like browbeating. It can feel like there's, there's just too much. I can't go out and do all of this. But I want you guys to remember, as I get ready to conclude this, this entire series, the pinnacle of this message, of this series, excuse me, was Sermon 2. Wives looking forward to your position in Christ because you will not and cannot submit as, and live as wives are called to live from a scriptural perspective without your identity in Christ. You cannot do it. Husbands, you cannot and will not lead your home and love your wives as you're called to do if you do not look at your identity in Christ. You have to look back to what we talked about, Christ loving his church. We have the power of Christ within us. He, are, he uh, uh, fills us. We are united with him. His spirit indwells us. Our identity is Christians. We are in Christ. So understand that the bridegroom, Christ, we are his church, and we are united in him just as husband and wife are united in one flesh. That is how we accomplish and are able to accomplish what we are called to do as husband and wife. It is in him, resting in the work that he did to redeem us. There is no greater mystery in my mind. There's a, maybe not no greater, but a very high level of mystery wraps around the idea that God thinks it's the best idea to take two miserable sinners and put them together for all of their lives. But he redeems them first. He indwells them first. He brings them together and he says, I am here to help you live as new creatures. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to accomplish that. So we have to understand what the roles are. The last thing I want to leave, and I'm going to read a small quote and we'll be done. 
I want to caution each one of us here. Husbands, if during the sermon about wives submitting, the only thing you could think of is, I hope my wife is paying attention, you've missed the point of today's message. Wives, if the only thing you can think of during this series is, man, I hope my husband is paying attention, you've missed the point of the message of this text to you. This, is, this text is here so that each individual will be responsible before God and understand how their role in the marriage is supposed to work. Do not dismiss the, the message for yourself and your own position in the marriage because you're so focused on what your spouse is or is not doing because that's not what the text says to do, is it? There's a directive for each member of the union together and that, that member, that side of the union, has to focus on their responsibility. So I would caution us how we view that. In closing, I want to read this last quote to you. It's, it sums up both sermons about marriage so well. Probably the most fragile mechanism in the whole creation is the male ego. One of the most difficult things to admit or to understand is that there is probably nothing that a man wants more from his wife than her admiration. There is probably nothing that a woman wants more from her husband than his attention, taking her seriously and treating her with the greatest dignity. Here, here what we are getting at is the question of respect. If I exercise my headship over my wife in a tyrannical way, I am not respecting my wife. If my wife gives slavish obedience to me without any love, she is not respecting me. The whole basis of the relationship is built upon love, cherishing, and respecting one another. I can get that quote to you if you want, because that is a fantastic summary of those two messages. And I pray, my prayer is that we in this church will take our family responsibilities both from husband and wife very, very seriously because the foundation of a healthy church are healthy families. The foundation of a healthy church are healthy families. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to see what you have done for your church as the bridegroom. And I pray that we as husbands, the bridegrooms that you have put in each one of these relationships would live as we have discussed today, that we would be challenged where we fall short and not challenged in a way that we feel defeated, but challenged in a way that we know what you have called us to and that we know that you are strengthening us by our union with you to live out the life as husbands that you have called us to live, the headship that you have called us to have, the loving respect and glorification of our wives that you've called us to have. I pray, Lord, that you will work in us, change our desires, change our hearts, that we would be men of God that lead well to your glory. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen.